So there's one fundamental truth about God that we run into at one point or another in our lives. And that's this. That God is God and you are not. God is God and we are not. Listen to Isaiah chapter 45, verse 5. This is God speaking to Cyrus. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. There is a God, and I'm not him. There is a God, and you're not him. There isn't a current opening for ruler of the universe right now. No vacancy. Which is fine and dandy when that idea like stays on the Bible. But it gets really hard and messy when that idea begins to bump into the reality of your life. How do you make sense of that? Like what happens when God acts a certain way and you don't like it? Or the other side, when God doesn't act a certain way and you don't like it? What happens when God does God kind of things in God kind of ways on God's kind of time schedule? Ever happened to you before? Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to the book of Habakkuk. That's right, I said Habakkuk. Uh, it, it's in the Old Testament. It's one of the minor prophets. It goes Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, if, if that helps you at all. You can look at the table of contents as well. Some say Habakkuk, others say Habakkuk. I think it's a tomato-tomato thing because it's bar borrowed word from the Akkadian language. There's no Hebrew equivalent, so I'm going to say Habakkuk because that's how I was taught when I was a kid. I'm not sure how familiar you are with the minor prophets, let alone Habakkuk. I'm sure you all woke up this morning saying, I just sure hope we talk about Habakkuk today. But scholars call Habakkuk a mini-Job, a miniature version of Job. And the reason they do so is because the book wrestles through hardship, difficulty, problems in the world, and how that intersects with the character of God. Habakkuk is all about what happens when God doesn't do what you want him to do. It's a time and a space for wrestling with questions for God. And again, some of you may be saying, like, this is Advent. There's a Christmas tree up here. Why would, why would we spend time during Advent talking about a, an obscure Hebrew prophet like this? Shouldn't we be talking about Mary and Joseph and wise men and angels and baby Jesus? And we'll, we'll get there. We'll see the intersection in time. 
But again, like I said earlier, even around the night of prayer and lament, I do know this, that underneath the sparkle of all the pretty lights and underneath the hustle and bustle of the mall, there's this gnawing ache that exists underneath the surface with deeper questions, problems, and impatient waiting. There's just one theologian, she's really brilliant, her name's Fleming Rutledge. Her line is this, Advent begins in the dark. I toyed with the idea, I think someone had recommended of us turning the lights off this morning and starting in the dark, which would have been maybe an appropriate way to start. But Advent begins in the dark. The light of Christmas Eve, the light of Christmas Day, the light of all that we celebrate this season is so remarkable because of the dark, because of the pain, because of the, the despair, the hopelessness that we, that we feel. And our pain, if you didn't realize this, our pain doesn't magically disappear at Christmas. Most often it goes underground. Where do we take our pain? Where do we take our questions? Where do we take our disappointment? And it's just really helpful to remember, again, even this time of year, we are not the first people to wrestle with disappointment and disillusionment. We aren't the first ones to have questions for God. And Habakkuk, in many ways, um, we get to learn from him. He gets to be the guinea pig for us to watch and see how he does this and how he engages God. Uh, and I think there's more for us to celebrate the wonder and the beauty of God sending his son as we understand the darkness that Advent begins in. So if you have a Bible, I'll put the verses on the screen as well. Here's Habakkuk. We'll just dive in and uh, we'll go through this this month together. Here's Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. And so justice goes forth perverted. How's that for a start? How long, O oh Lord? So even though Habakkuk is a minor prophet, it's not your typical minor prophet. The minor prophets were given to bring a message of judgment to the people of Israel and Judah. And there definitely is a message of judgment that's being brought in the book, but this book is more like even Jonah in some ways, or Hosea, in that the message is interwoven into the life of the prophet. And so what he experiences becomes the message. So there is judgment coming to Judah, which is the southern two tribes of the kingdom, but Habakkuk's main rub is about how God's judgment is going to come to these people. So the book begins, and Habakkuk does not like what he sees. So we're talking again, just like setting the, the framework and kind of where this happens in the Bible. This is 7th century B.C., 
in Judah, the southern two tribes of the divided kingdom. And when Habakkuk looks around, when Habakkuk checks his Twitter feed, he says, everything's a mess. He says, everything appears to be unhinged. There's violence, plundering, strife. He says, it feels like the wicked just keep doing what they want to, that the righteous keep suffering, and the law... Pointless, useless. It doesn't do a darn thing. And then even when he cries out to God, and others cry out to God, hey, there's violence over there. It's like God doesn't even hear, or that God doesn't even see. Nothing seems to be going right. Injustice prevails. Chaos has broken out. I'm telling you, some things never change. We're not the first ones to feel that way. So eventually, all Habakkuk can do is cry out to God. He asks two questions that we're going to look at today. Here's the first question that he cries out. His first pressing question is, God, how long? How long am I going to have to wait before you actually do something about this? Verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? It's like he's praying and it's a brass ceiling and it just bounces back to him. I just, some of you need to be encouraged today that you're not the only one who feels this way and you're not the only one who's prayed this way. How long? You're in good company. Have you ever been impatient with God? Have you ever felt like he's not listening to you? Have you ever felt like he's not paying attention to your very legitimate request? Habakkuk is crying out with his heart. God, are you listening? God, are you paying attention? God, where are you? God, how long do I have to keep going like this? There are times when the weight of our problems get too much for us to bear. And yet I I want to remind us that when we read through the scriptures, we see this pattern over and again, that the life of faith is often somehow tied together to the life of patience. And we don't like it that way. But I think even of, of Abraham and Sarah and the promises spoken to them from God and how long do they have to wait? How many times did Sarah say, how long, O Lord? I think of Joseph and his story of being betrayed by his family, sold into slavery, wrongly accused of a crime, thrown into prison for a long time. How many times did Joseph cry out to God, how long, O Lord? And we read the story in just a few pages. We turn the page, like, oh, it all worked out. Man, that was a long time for him to wait. Not to mention Job or Hannah, Rebecca, a long line of others. But it's not just them, it's us too. I've been pastoring here in this church for 15 years. I know the stories in the room today. Stories of economic crisis, hard times financially, broken marriages, difficulty, 
with siblings, difficulty with children, difficulty with fertility. Those questions are our questions too. How long? And as our, as our eyes are open to the greater world around us. Violence! Injustice, that's not right, that's wrong. I think even more as we have more friends from the world coming now to our community and we hear more stories, our world is opened up. And we cry out, how long? Like all of us who follow God in faith, sometimes God doesn't jump in and act the way we want him to. But I am encouraged in this, that God welcomes our voice, and he receives our cry, and he actually invites our raw, honest expression. Now, for Habakkuk, that's his first question. He's like, I look around, (laughs) the world's a mess. My first question is, God, how long do I have to wait? And you're not going to do anything about this. Second question, fortunately for Habakkuk, God answers him. He doesn't have to wait long in the, in the story, in the text here. And verse 5, God replies. Like, oh, what's God going to say to that? Okay, here we go. God's turn. Verse 5. It says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. So it's the classic scenario. Good news, bad news. I've got some good news for you, Habakkuk. God answered your cry. God has a a reply for you. Bad news, Habakkuk, is the reply that he says. What does he say? Verse 6, God says, oh, I'm actually going to do something about it. You see the violence and the injustice and the corruption among the people of Judah? I see it too, and I'm actually going to do something about it. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to use an instrument to bring justice and judgment to them. Here's who I'm picking, the Chaldeans. The Babylonians. And if you've ever read any ancient world history, they're infamous. Nasty, bitter, violent, pagan nation. And so if you're tracking with the story, Habakkuk sees the world, sees the problem, sees the injustice, says, God, how long, when will you act? And God says, I'm about ready to move. I'm going to send someone to deal with it. And I'm sending the Chaldeans. And just so you know, Habakkuk absolutely hates this idea. Here's the second question he asks. Why that? 
This is when God how long moves to that? Why that? I don't like that idea. So here's Habakkuk's reply back, verse 12. He says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net, makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? And if you catch Habakkuk's tone, he is just miffed at God. Just, what are you doing? How long just became, why that? Because how can God choose that as a way of solving the problem? How could God turn to these people who historically had a reputation of being far worse, in quotes, far worse than Judah, and he's going to use them to bring justice? He tells that to God in verse 12 and 13. He's like, oh Lord, you've appointed them for judgment, right? Like, they, they need judgment. Like, I know I'm complaining about this judgment, but like, they need judgment more than we do. You can't use them. Like, maybe to put it in some sort of start, startling modern terms. God, when are you going to deal with the violence and the injustice and the, and the, and the problems that we see? Oh, I'm going to raise up a terrorist organization to come deal with it. You're like, no way. Question number two, God, you're not supposed to do it that way. How long turns into why? Many years ago, My son came stumbling into my room in the middle of the night. This is like when he's six or seven. My kids, when they were young, often stumbled into my bedroom in the middle of the night. There was a season when they would use my bathroom rather than their bathroom, which was across the hall. And my wife trained them to come to my side of the bed instead of her side of the bed. So they always came to me in the middle of the night. One night, my son came to the bed, and his routine was to come in, use the bathroom, get a drink of water, and then stumble his way back to bed. And one night I heard the bathroom visit happening, and then all of a sudden I hear, because my wife had left her cup of coffee, day-old coffee, on the side of my nightstand, and so <laughs> instead of getting a sip of nice refreshing water before going back to bed, he got cold coffee. That, that's Habakkuk's response. Like, seriously, God? It just, it just, that's horrible. That is disgusting. There's nothing right about that. How could you? And I, 
Have you ever been there before? Trying to make sense of a God, this God who says, I am the Lord and there is no other. And then you make sense of the world that is. You cry out to him with all of your heart. And then even at times when he begins to move, you're like, that was not what I wanted you to do. Now next week, uh, we're going to look at chapter 2, and I, I love the interaction in chapter 2. There's some, actually some helpful things in our waiting, in our season of waiting that we learn from Habakkuk. But before then, I want to pay attention to this conversation that's happening with Habakkuk and, and the Lord. Because you learn a lot about the way people talk about God. You also learn a lot about the way people talk to God. And I would encourage us today, even in learning from Habakkuk in chapter 1, that good, healthy wrestling with God involves both honor and honesty, requests and reverence. And we don't often marry those together. Honor and honesty requests, and reverence. I've discovered that some people have a hard time being honest with God. And oftentimes it has to do with our personality or our family of origin. Some of us were drilled from the time we were young. Don't you dare talk to God like that. And so when like, things go sideways, we're like, I think I'm supposed to pray, but I don't know, can I say that to God? Can I, can I even be honest with him? And so we, we put on maybe a plastic smiley face and we do the, the church things, but the deep, like the deep ache, the deep longing, the deep things of our heart and soul, we never actually verbalize to God because we feel like we can't. We don't know how to be honest. We were in a leadership meeting this last week, and as we're talking about the theme of lament, someone in our team said, I wonder sometimes if God looks at my complaint, my verbalization back to him like I do with my kids when they complain about screen time being taken away. Do we have an ability to be honest with God? Do you have an ability to be honest with God? Or has the message been, zip it, stuff it, and slowly back away? I just want to remind us here, what's Habakkuk doing at the very beginning? God isn't afraid of Habakkuk's questions. Habakkuk, as he begins this book, he's bold, and he's audacious, and he he puts it out there. Verse 2, he accuses God of not hearing. Verse 3, he accuses God of being idle. Verse 12, he asks God a rhetorical question. Are you not from everlasting? You know what a rhetorical question is? It's a question that's not really a question because you have these assumptions that are baked into them. And you ask a rhetorical question when you want to tell someone something, not get an actual answer. And so Habakkuk keeps asking God these rhetorical questions like, I know, I know who you are. I know what you're like. Are you serious? 
And God isn't afraid of the honest human questions that some of us maybe have a hard time expressing. So maybe even today, some of this is invitation to say, no, you don't have to stuff that question. You don't have to put on the plastic smile. Would you be willing to voice that to God? He, he can take it. And my hope is that we as a community would be able to take it too. Mature enough to handle the questions that often are spoken in private actually to be spoken in public too. Then there's also, though, the other extreme, uh, again, honesty and honoring, request and reverence. And there's some of you that have absolutely no problem talking to God that way. You're like, let it fly. I'm going to tell God a thing or two. Come here, where is he? Let me tell him something. And again, there's an invitation to be honest. And I would also say, though, I know from experience and know from walking with people that there's a point, too, where that becomes poisonous. When there's a lack of honor, when bitterness creeps in, and there's a complete forgetting of who it is you are talking to. And again, I I love this about Habakkuk, because he's willing in chapter one, he, he goes at God honestly and yet also he hasn't unhooked or gone unhinged from the character of god if you look at his words verse 12 he does name god as everlasting he acknowledges that god is the one who is eternal with no beginning and no end in verse 12 he refers to him as yahweh that's why in your bible it's capital l capital o capital r capital d That's the way in our English versions of getting at, there's a difference between all caps, Lord, and just capital L, Lord. All caps, Lord, is Yahweh, the covenant name of God, the name that God gave to Moses when he was asked who he was. He is the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenant God of Israel, the covenant God who makes promises and keeps promises, and Habakkuk still speaks to him on those terms. He remembers who he's talking to, a promise-keeping God. Still in verse 12, he calls him my God. This is not abstract and distant. He's still personal. And then he calls God a rock. Not just because of God's mineral contents, but he calls God a rock, this poetic imagery of the one who is, who is our immovable foundation, God who has eternality, the one who is faithful and true and unchanging. So even though there are plenty of questions, boatloads of requests, pointed questions to God, there's still more than enough understanding of who it is that he is speaking to. What questions do you have for God today? You ever been to a restaurant where things uh, didn't go as planned, where they messed up your order? You ever found hair in your food? That for me, that's to me, my kids know this, that's a deal breaker. Like, like instantly my body shuts down. 
I'm done eating for that hour. I, won't, I can't eat. I'm done. There's hair in my food. <laughs> what do you do when they mess up your order or there's hair in your food? <laughs> Who do you talk to? You guys just eat it? Like, what a co- <laughs> right? You talk to your waiter or your waitress. You're like, there's something wrong with my food here. There's hair in my food, and I tell my waiter, there's hair in my food, and he goes, plucks it out and says, there, fine, eat it. <laughs> what would I say next? No, I wouldn't say you eat it. What would I say, what, what would I say next? Can I speak to your manager? Right? Because I'm going to go up the food chain and talk to someone who actually can do something about the hair in my food. Why? Why would I do that? Why would I have the audacity to speak to my waiter? And why would I have the audacity to speak for a manager? Why? What's the underlying assumption? They have authority. They have authority. And? It's not acceptable. Why? What's our, what's our unwritten rule in America when it comes to... There it is. Because the customer is always right. I'm not sure what rule book that's in. I think it's in the Declaration of Independence, I think. Because the customer is always right. And I believe that somehow we have allowed our customer service mentality to trickle into our faith. I'm the customer. God, you're the manager. And my needs are always right and must be tended to immediately. And I think we need to be careful of the ways in which that has come into our relationship with God. Invitation for honest asking. Understanding for who he is. We must stop only worshiping at the altar of what makes sense to us. If we only, again, that's not, that's not to say we have to be stupid people, foolish people, or have an irrational faith. But if we only agree to that which makes sense to us from our perspective, man, we miss out. I've read the scriptures. It doesn't always make sense. In fact, this is a story that often doesn't make sense in the moment. I love this line in verse 5. When Habakkuk is like, God, where are you? God, why? God, violent, God, what are you doing? How long? God says, I'm doing a work in your day that you wouldn't believe if told. We don't have categories for that. That there could be, that God is actually saying, there is a work I'm doing. You don't see it. You may not know it. And even if I did tell you, you probably wouldn't even believe me. To think that God may be at work in that way is hard for us to grasp. But this, in some ways, is that Jack Nicholson line from A Few Good Men, you can't handle the truth. All throughout this chapter, though, all throughout this story, all throughout the scripture, the constant reminder is is that we must not judge God's activity by our timetables, by our measurements, and by our calendars.
God says, be in wonder and be amazed. Because my ways are not necessarily your ways. And we see he, like for centuries, people like Habakkuk cried out to God for help. Like they legitimately cried out for God to save. And they looked and they waited. They yearned for Messiah to come. Out of Egypt, hundreds of years. Out of exile, hundreds of years. They kept waiting. The prophets spoke and they waited. The prophets foretold about a God who had a plan that would be amazing and they waited. They kept saying the days would come, centuries ticked by. How long, O Lord? When is he coming? When are you acting? Why don't you speed things up as rescuer and redeemer? How stinking long, God, must we wait? And then Galatians 4, 4 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. The fullness of time. It's time. It's time. And finally, it was time for the Savior of the world to come, God in the flesh. How does it happen then? (laughs) Do you realize the craziness of our story? A Messiah, not born in the places of power in the empire, a Messiah born in obscurity. Parents from Nazareth, born in a little sleepy town of Bethlehem. God in the flesh, chased by a tyrant, so they flee the land for their lives. They end up in Egypt as refugees. Why that? A Messiah born as a baby, a tiny, fragile little baby. A Messiah born to a virgin, born to an unwed teenage mother, to someone who caused whispers in the neighborhood over her pregnancy. A plan that caused many people to miss it, many people to stumble in disbelief, many people to say, how long, O Lord? Oh, it's time. Why that? Why that? That's not how I would have done it. Might it be that God specializes in doing work that we wouldn't believe even if we were told? Might it cause us to wonder and be amazed? I wouldn't have done it like that. How long? Why that? My friends, it's been asked before, many, many times before, and it will be asked again. That's why I'm calling these questions sacred questions. These questions are sacred questions. And I think they're sacred questions for two reasons. Number one, they're sacred questions because if God doesn't exist, they don't matter. Like if, if, if this whole thing, all of life is just a cosmic accident, random chance that produce some random things that produce more randomness, then these questions don't even matter. How long? Why that? We shouldn't even ask those questions. So they're questions that draw us into the divine. 
of the one who actually is the author of this story. And they're sacred questions because they've been asked many, many, many times before by people trying to make sense of God, and it brings them together and them with God together in a more real and personal way. And so I sense, even in this moment, as we enter into Advent this season, I sense that God may be inviting you into greater conversation today. Some of you, maybe who are more um, churched, more apt to restraint, and like, I could, never, I could never talk to God like that. I think God would be like, actually, I want you, like, I, I know <laughs> your thoughts, but before there's even a word on my tongue, he knows it, the psalmist says. So he's like, hey, bring it to me. Bring it on. Don't hide it. Let it loose. Bring it to me. And I would sense maybe others, too. Maybe you've strayed from any sense of reverence for God. Your disappointment has led to anger. Your anger has moved to bitterness. And here's what I found when it comes to bitterness. It's really hard to have a conversation with someone when you're bitter with them. You begin to push him off and you push him aside and you push him away. Not meaning to be dismissive of anyone's pain in the room today. But it could be leading you in a place that you don't want to go. If he's big enough to get mad at, maybe he's big enough to have reasons why that you don't understand. As Advent begins, what questions do we have for God today? Questions are welcomed. I'm just going to invite you to take 30 seconds before I pray, before the worship team comes up, before we take communion. Maybe in your notes, in your Bible, on your phone, in your notes app, what questions do you have for God today? What needs to be asked? There's freedom. There's permission. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you've come. And we name that we tend to operate with a customer service mentality that we're always right, and we are willing to admit that is wrong. And uh, we, we want to engage you with this hard stuff, with these deeper questions, with the, the inconsistencies that we feel between your character and what we see in the world. God, help us to have humility that mixes together with honesty in a really beautiful way. God, I pray for those who have grown maybe hard in their heart toward you because of so much repeated disappointment 
I pray even for just a, a freshness, a tenderness that could come alive and a willingness to go there again. God, we thank you for Jesus. The one that we can look to with certainty around the questions of how long and, and why. You answered them in Jesus. And we know you're coming again. So Lord, I offer a room full of questions. We pray that even over the next few weeks you would be meeting us in surprising ways. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.